I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Jesse Horowitz is a serial entrepreneur. He's co-founder of an e-commerce contact lens company called Hubble Contacts, and he consults with major Fortune 500 retail companies on how to adapt, quote, selling naked strategies into their own marketing and brand mix. He's even appeared on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. He's incredibly talented. I was introduced to Jesse by a friend and was interested in learning about his experience in digital marketing. We are all familiar with the explosive rise in these new direct-to-consumer commerce companies in areas such as razors, mattresses, clothes, suitcases, and many other things. It's a new way of conducting business, and it's driven in large part by the advent of social media as a marketing channel. Jesse is a young man, but he's arguably already a leader or the leader in this space. If you listen carefully to what he says, you'll hear what I think is the single most important thing that companies can think about, and that is namely listening to your customers. It sounds obvious, and it's something that most say they want to do, but in reality, they don't. Jesse makes the point that it is not just the right thing to do morally or ethically, but it's the right thing to do for your business. And it's refreshing when these Venn diagram circles overlap. This young man started off as a math and film major in college and focused early on learning the art of storytelling. He then went to learn the art and science of investing, which one might argue is a different form of storytelling. Well, now he's back telling stories, and I think you'll enjoy hearing what he has to say, whether you're a founder of a direct-to-consumer company or you're just a consumer yourself. Please enjoy my conversation with Jesse Horwitz. Yeah, I grew up in Westchester, um, Pelham, then Pleasantville, went to Byron Hills High School. I really actually never went very far at all. I was Westchester, then Columbia undergrad. Um, I was always jealous of my cousins who grew up in the city. It was a going to be a film math double major and uh columbia was a film studies program so we watched movies and wrote papers and it was easy to persuade oneself that that had anything to do with making them Um, but then one semester i got a pa internship on sony pictures daytime judge shows just because it was the closest live set to campus and it was horrible um, it was just the most miserable. <laughs> the folks were perfectly nice. It was just the most miserable thing. Um, and I realized film production is horrible. And that was about the point where I was deep enough into a math major um, that, it, you know, switching from a roughly applied math to proof work, which was brutal, ended up being the major that everyone was going to be at the start, which is econ math. Um, which in, was uh, Columbia politely created if you wanted a math minor and an econ minor and to call that one major um, that existed. So that was like, I was, I was undergrad 2010. Um, so recruiting, applying to law school at the same time, um, ended up at Harvard Law, wanted to work in investment management, pretty much immediately just started recruiting again, um, made a friend who had been at Bridgewater in between college and uh, law school, Interned at Bridgewater after my 1L year and stayed at Bridgewater. Then I was trading with a guy from Bridgewater for a year. Then I was on the investment team for Columbia's endowment for a few years. And one of my friends from Bridgewater who lived across the street from us on the Upper West Side um, 
ended up at BCG, then Harry's, which is a shaving subscription. And he started, Ben started looking at contact lenses as a box subscription category in like late 2015, which is that kind of stumbled into this. So let's back up because you, yes. you glossed over some of the fascinating bits there. So film and math, was that like uh, common or were you the um, only one? I, I think I liked it because it, uh, you know, it felt appropriately intellectual and my folks liked it because like, you know, you, you could have a spare major if you had like one credible one, um, which which was going to be the math major. It just turns out that a math major is really hard and you have to be real smart. So you make this pivot, you yeah. do the econ math thing and then and law school was but you knew going into law school that you didn't want to actually practice law yeah it was it was my first econ course was september 15th 2008 so like we walked into class and our and our intro to econ professor walked us through lehman going bankrupt that morning um and what that meant and so um i didn't choose the best time to switch to econ and be a credible internship candidate, you know, for, for senior year and, you know, and then for recruiting right after that. And so I figured like hide in a university another year, um, just kind of keep recruiting and sort of grind, work it out that way. And you somehow convinced the people at Harvard Law School that you were legitimate and credible as a law school Yeah, student. yeah, 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 yeah. And so then basically you took the year between first and second year and never came back. Is it, did I hear that correct? Yes. You never graduated. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so you went and did all this investment stuff using your math. I'm assuming like you were, were you doing? Yeah, that? sure. I mean, like in, you know, Bridgewater's a systematic fund, but it's, you know, it's very much quant light. Um, you know, it wasn't like Renaissance or D Shaw or anything. Um, this was still very much stuff you do in Excel, which is, which is about as say I'm more, um, numerative than, <laughs> than, than really a mathematician. So, but did you use, I mean, I'm assuming I'm going to try and draw, like draw this together a little yeah, bit. Yeah, film, yeah. In the film world, I'm assuming that you're developing pattern recognition and like looking at shots and how to set them up and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Which one was more helpful to you as an investor, the film stuff or the math stuff? Math stuff, but basically like nothing you'd pick up past like high school stats or so. So, um, yeah, I'd say the most helpful stuff in film, not even within the screenwriting, some of it was in screenwriting courses, but just a, a lot of emphasis on narrative and narrative structure um, and all the, um, you know, Joseph Campbell, uh, Man of a Thousand Faces and the Robert McKee story stuff. Um, and I did, I do think... Um, whether you need to academically acquire it or not, thinking look, thinking about narrative a lot in the in the startup space and even in the investing space broadly is important in terms of being able to tell a story or yeah, in yeah. terms yeah, in terms of that's what yeah. persuades people at the end of the day is it, it needs to be robust and there needs to be uh, you know evidence based argument behind it. But um, yeah, but people people think I I, I I do subscribe to the people think and stories thing. Yeah, I think I do too. I want to come back to that because I think then there's the other bit of this too, which is the marketing side, yeah. you know, which is, I mean, we're all telling stories. My my grandfather was an advertising guy and you know, basically it's about telling stories yeah. and um, and narratives and all that stuff. stuff. So you're working at this point full-time at Bridgewater, but you're advising Columbia on their endowment. No, 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 no. I was at Bridgewater. Then I, then I left Bridgewater. Then I was, then I was at Columbia, at Got it. Columbia and, and trading with a Bridgewater guy, another Bridgewater guy in between the two. And I mean, at that point, what are you 23? Um, when I was at Bridgewater, like 22, 23. Yeah, that's about right. And so how did you convince the 
whatever it is, the board, whoever it is in the investment side, you know, that runs their investment group at Columbia yeah. that you're capable of coming in and working with them. It was funny because even though I was an, even though I was an alum, it was not a, um, there were a few B-School alums in general. It was, most endowments are built entirely out of alums, so like Yale's program, all alum, a lot of schools heavily alum, unless true over time as endowments have sort of become a specialized investing space. But, um, and, and something of a geographic component to that, because it's hard to get people to, a lot of schools want their endowment to be located where the university is, and it's hard to recruit people unless you're just grabbing alums out on the way out. If anything, Columbia was a bit unusual in hiring people who had like, you know, two to three years experience, whereas most of the endowments were hiring straight out of school. And so it was funny. It was just, that's the only thing I've ever done where it was like just off an open job application. And the CEO and CIO at the endowment were not alums. I, you know, were very focused, very focused on driving performance for the institution. But, you know, I, I don't think had a sentimental spot, nor should they have about kind of hiring Columbia folks. And what year, what year was, was this? This, is- this was uh, 2013 when I started there. Okay, 2012, so- 2000, 2013, yeah. Far enough post recession that Pete, that the market was doing. Oh well. yeah, yeah, everything was it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and then it was while you were there that some that you sort of found, stumbled into the Hubble thing. Is that yeah, right? that's right. That's right. Um, endowment. There's a lot. There's a lot that's that's cool about endowment investing. Um, you know, with the with the trade off that by and large you're a limited partner and you're not general partner. So you know, so you're investing in investors as a as opposed to touching the deals too closely. Uh, you get to look at and get, you know, and go and come through data and, and talk to these folks in an enormous variety of spaces. So you get to work on real estate, you get to work on venture, um, quantitative and, you know, hedge fund investing, um, buyouts, energy, pretty much anything you, you got to play around with it. And so that was really cool. And it's a, you know, it, it was a rigorous work environment, but it was a pretty regular schedule. And so there was, you know, a fair amount of bandwidth for kind of nights and weekends, you know, digging into things with friends. And the, over the course of my time at Columbia, I probably, you know, explored like half a dozen different uh, projects with friends. And um, one of the things I realized from trading in between the left Bridgewater, I thought like, okay, I'm going to get set up with another Bridgewater guy. And like, this will be easy. Like Bridgewater has a hundred billion dollars. Great. Is like, it's very hard to have at least for me, and I think for a lot of people to have ideas particularly far away from the space that you're in every day, you're more likely to, you know, I think a lot of ideas come from problems and you're more likely to spot problems in the thing you actually work on. And so you're sort of limited by your own experience then. And so when I was at Columbia, I was very game. A, I didn't have the bandwidth to like drive something by myself and B, I wanted exposure to a bunch of different spaces. So like, you know, if I had a friend who was in gaming or a friend who was in life sciences or a friend who was in box subscription, you know, e-commerce, whatever it was, I was always very game to kind of be number two on, you know, on, on the project they were driving because it was a way to get um, my hands dirty in a bunch of different things. And, you know, the thought being I was, in, I was happy on the endowment side. And if one of them kind of gained momentum, then that would, you know, I'd go off and do that. I'm curious a little bit about what I want to come back to actually the endowment side because it's it's an area that I don't think about too much, but it's interesting because again it's all part of this sort of skill it's skill set you've acquired in learning how to recognize talent or were you guys purely looking at performance past performance of of these investments or were you being more creative than that? Um, it, it's it's really hard because the the first thing you're mindful of as an investor 
is an endowment investors that the past performance doesn't predict very much of anything. Uh, you know, past returns do not indicate future performance, yada, yada. That's the the firmest thing you have to anchor yourselves to. And so the team was very thoughtful about why an investor might have an advantage in a given space or not. But it, it basically, you had three kinds of of investments. One is for, for one, you know, one just sort of being we should just do this through an index fund and it, and it's a vanilla exposure and that's the cheapest way to get it to get it Two is some sort of alternatives exposure where you just have a view that the you know that there's an advantage to having that alternatives allocation so like you could think that having private real estate is better than having um than being in a reit or you know some sort of publicly traded real estate and vehicle and that it's worth even if the investor's average it's just it's an interesting space that's diversifying that you want in your portfolio the problem is you know a lot of the alternative strategies are pretty mature and pretty commoditized at this point and so it becomes a difficult claim to convince yourself of then three is that returns don't generally persist but for whatever reason with this particular manager you think they're going to and that was always easiest to con- at least for me to convince myself if it was a space where returns generally had a um, tendency to persist which, which was is pretty uncommon really the only two areas quant hedge funds that was true renaissance d shaw pdt millenniums quant products you know a, a few sort of and to a degree you could put even um, even though they're human traders instead of quant traders they're sort of you know cyborg hybrid something like millennium or citadel where you have human traders supported by hedged with an enormous amount of uh you know tech driven infrastructure that you could you could tell yourself a story that those repeated and you could sort of it's hard because these are long-term investments so you don't get to play this you you you, the in sample out of sample thing is hard but you could say okay if i went back 10 years ago and i were just to invest in the basket of you know every quant hedge fund that looked good at that point would my out of sample have looked okay uh, and the answer would have been yes. And so you say, okay, like this feels robust. Uh, and, th- and that was true there. Um, and then the other place that was true was sort of top decile venture tends, you know, still, at least last time I looked at the numbers, you know, still has persistence in a good way for the investors and kind of a necessary way for the rise of, you know, for the companies growing. That's very much a bit, you know, has a bit of a clubhouse environment to it that, you know, I, I think makes sense why that would persist in a way it hasn't held up in buyouts, which are, you know, pretty auction driven and and pretty commoditized at this point. And and then the fourth one was sort of just oddball off the run stuff, which um, it's, you need a couple decades of data to say whether those bets are worth it or not, but you find something interesting like litigation finance or healthcare royalties, which are, you know, now a more mature space, but were pretty novel when, when Columbia went in um, or, you know, onshore Chinese equities and you say, okay, XYZ is, I need a good enough manager, but XYZ is just an odd space. And so it makes sense and an immature space. And so it makes sense that there'd be an advantage there. Do you think you learned enough that if you ever decided to go back that you'd feel good about it? I mean, do you think you could go run a fund? Not like I couldn't run like a long short fund. I couldn't run a buyout fund, but um, I'd like to think I learned a lot on yeah. the sort of allocator yeah. side. Yeah, that's cool. So, how did tell tell me how how Hubble started? So, how somebody came to you with this idea and said we would love to have you look at it? Or no, it, it was my fun? it was my friend Ben. Um, and you know, I, I was always uh, I still do. I was you know poke people on uh, you know what ideas they're playing around with, and he's like, 
Well, you know, right now he was at Harry's, you know, I, I sell razors on subscription, but, you know, good business doing well. Um, you know, if it, what's great about it is it's a lightweight product for shipping and it's very high percentage margin. What's, you know, and it's a fairly recurring behavior. Um, what's tougher about it is um, your annual razor spend just isn't very high. And so, you know, wouldn't it be nice if um, there were a category where the dollar spend was just higher so that the shipping eats up less of the fewer of the margin dollars and there's more margin dollars to put against marketing? And, you know, contacts kind of lined up with that. So he was playing around, you know, he's playing around with contact lenses um, and I kind of just started digging in with him really just, um, you know, starting with kind of contract manufacturers in the space and diligencing um, the supply landscape. And we kind of took it from there. And where was Warby Parker at this point? Were they kind of mature? Harry's was actually co-founded by one of Warby's founders. Um, so Harry's, I think, Warby, I don't know if they still are at that point. Warby, Harry's was like one floor up from Warby in some uh, building downtown. And were you, so I guess my question is more, yeah. were you aware of them and were you learning kind of from their experience? And did you think this is, people don't like to go to the optometrist and and maybe we can use yeah, to contacts think, a recurrent, you could do the subscription thing? Was that- I think um, we were certainly very aware of Warby. I think Glass is a very different space. And I think Warby's made a major shift to retail because, um, look, the, the company that's killing it in um, in, in e-commerce glasses is, is any optical. The best information I have is they're, you know, the majority of, of, of online share. And I, I think the challenge for e-commerce glasses is, especially if it's sort of your primary product, is the at-home try-on mail back in is just a clunky funnel. And so the way Zenny made this work is they just made the pairs 20 bucks with the lenses, with everything. And so that's so cheap that you can just cheat, treat it like a disposable product. Um, the challenge is, you know, for them to be able to do that, they really need more efficient manufacturing supply chain, not just on the frame production, but on, on the lens fitting as well, um, which I, I have to imagine is done all on site, you know, all, all on at, at one location for them. And Warby, as best I know, doesn't have any of that kind of um, infrastructure. So, you know, kind of anchored to a higher price point, which works fine for retail, but is tougher for e-com. And so when you guys got started, what were your kind of perceptions about what the biggest barriers were going to be for for Hubble? The biggest thing we were concerned about was lining up supply. The top four supplier, the top four manufacturers, the you know, four major branded manufacturers have around, you know, 95, 90% share. And so, you know, there was a real question at the outset, was there a contract manufacturer with enough scale to support the business we want to build? It's a little bit of a Goldilocks space from our perspective because, you know, you can, no contract manufacturers means you don't have a business too many and you run into the, some of the problems that have popped up in the mattress space and contacts were nice, similar to razors, actually razors. There's only kind of a couple viable um, contract manufacturers where there was one CM that was much bigger than all the rest, a company called St. Shine, who we then partnered with, the, you know, through an exclusive deal. And then one more behind them, Jinko, who we also have have an exclusive deal with. And then sort of a long tail of much smaller players behind them, um, such that we felt, you know, reasonably insulated 
from this, you know, from a hundred copycats in the unlikely scenario that uh, what we started on was successful. And, but you, you were pretty confident about demand. I mean, did you kind of make the assumption we, that people we, were so, want- so we, so what we did there was we, um, Harry's had posted to GitHub before they launched, they ran a campaign, uh, drop, a. it was a two page site. You entered your email, you got a link um, that you could post on Facebook. And then if friends signed up through your link, you got, you know, free product at launch. And, and they did that as a, you know, as a proper sort of pre-launch campaign. Um, we did a mock version of that just to, you know, as a demand test. I think we had like 30 friends seed the campaign and we got like a couple thousand signups off that off, you know, after a couple days. Um, and so that seemed like far from perfect, but, you know, reasonably uh, yeah, a, a reasonable demand test and demand signal and about as good as we were going to get at that point. So I, I, this might come across sounding worse than it, it should, but do you see the kind of core mission of you, of your company as a marketing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's interesting what marketing's come to mean. And, you know, I think a lot now about sort of like, okay, what is, digital, you know, what is this whole wave of digital direct response marketing? I mean, because you know, direct response marketing isn't anything new. Um, I mean, you've had catalogs since Sears Roebuck and uh, direct mailers for the last few decades and infomercials for the last, you know, few decades after that. But I, I do think even traditional DR is, and certainly brand marketing is very much you talking and the consumer listening. Um, and, and I, you know, and the more we do this, you know, both, both Hubble, you know, but other businesses we're investing in or advising or, you know, you know, playing different parts in. It's really about, you know, listening to the consumer. It makes me comfortable. Well, this might be all roundabout justification, but it makes me comfortable thinking about thinking of myself as a marketer and, you know, as our function as marketing, because I think what marketing means is evolving much more to it two-way, you know, two-way conversation where it's as much about figuring out how to do problem solving for the consumer better um, as it is kind of telling the consumer what they want and pers- trying to persuade them that you're right. And so can you give me some real life examples? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so, so great example. Um, ben, ben and I are um, investors and advisors to uh, Mockingbird as this stroller business that just launched. Uh, you know, we talk a lot with um, Eric Osmond, the CEO over there, who Ben worked with at Harry's. And um, within hours of going live, it was very clear consum- two things consumers really wanted. Consumers wanted a pink tarp and they wanted a double stroller. You know, that's a data-driven exercise where, you know, you're looking at total comment frequency um, on ads themselves, by email, um, you know, you're in, in, in looking up at, looking at all that volume and saying, is it meaningful and does this tie back to actual purchase intent? Because, like, you, you know, you'll get comments like contact lenses are, you know, contact lens, daily disposable contact lenses are just not the most, they're not awful. But, you know, all, all things being considered, classes are a more environmentally friendly product in terms of plastic use. There are commenters who totally reasonable for them to do so, you know, and sort of environmentally motivated will comment on something like that. You have to make the trade-off then as uh, as the person driving the business is is this you know is this something you know serving my consumer or is this something kind of public square where somebody's you know where somebody is not inappropriately you know using our ad space as a soapbox and you know and so I think that's kind of all, you know all the stuff you're parsing through but you know but when the consumer is telling you pretty directly 
what they want, um, what different features they'd like to see you respond. And I think that's the thing that's cool about those businesses. And it might seem sort of, uh, you know, incidental bordering on, you know, and interesting when you're thinking about, you know, extra features you want in the stroller, but I, I don't, I, you know, product in the, in the broadest sense that, you know, that could be, that can be a physical product or shipping. It can be an app. It can be a advocacy campaign or a nonprofit organization. Hearing from your stakeholders what they would like to see from you and responding to that is, makes you better at your job and means you're being respectful of them. Uh, that's a, it's a great point. And I think it actually raises this issue that you see over and over again. I'll have young entrepreneurs come and ask me about a business that they want to start in the healthcare world. And it may be beautiful technology, but the technology doesn't really address a, a problem. And, and it's hard to hear that, but I think, you know, one of the things that you've done, and it sounds like you've done it again and again, is to find real problems and areas where you can, you know, make an impact. And, and you don't always get it right, but that's important to hear also, which is like, okay, I thought, I thought we had a pain point here. Nobody seems to be that bothered. Um, you know, fold up the tent and go home on this one then. And I think, again, having very healthy respect for the consumer who is very sharp and pretty direct is generally a good North Star. And and how much, uh, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, and it's, I hate to even ask it, but how much do you think timing matters in businesses like this? Timing matters for a couple of reasons. Timing matters because things get played out. So actually go beyond direct to consumer, um, you know, uh, Leverage buyouts were a wildly lucrative strategy in the 80s, partly because of, you know, interest rate environment, but partly just because it was an immature strategy and it was, you know, the right space to be in. And less and less so with each, you know, subsequent decade. Of course, then the question is, what's your denominator? Because if you say your denominator in the 80s is leverage buyout, that's a little bit unfair. You have to say your denominator properly is highly speculative investments and it might not be against, you know, properly benchmarked against a portfolio of highly speculative investments. That would be a standout, but it might not be that the overall portfolio looks so good. Um, so there's timing in that sense. There's timing in terms of folks get smarter in the market evolves. So like, for example, I think if you look at the direct-to-consumer space, consumers are getting smarter, more comfortable transacting in the space. I think companies are also getting smarter about understanding the difference between the Walmart shelf and the Facebook ad and that, you know, on the Walmart shelf, you know, you got to buy your floss somewhere. Products that are very high percentage margin, even if the dollar margin is relatively low, can work fine. That that's not true on Facebook generally because um, we're all competing for the same ad impressions and a small dollar margin product is Maybe this isn't perfectly true, but by and large is also a way of saying a problem that isn't that acute for the consumer where you're not resolving that big a pain point. And so somebody else with a bigger pain point with more dollar margin attached to it's going to get ahead of you in line. But then I think the the dimension on which timing is overrated is I think product really matters. And I think that gets undervalued. So much of what's gone in, in direct to consumer is taking a bunch of models that started with, you know, su- you know, subscription software as a service, yada, yada, and, tr- and trying to port it over to the physical goods world. Uh, and I think with that's come an underappreciation of product quality and that there's a, there's a lot of spaces that are fairly saturated, actually, as direct-to-consumer categories where there probably is still room for new entrants because, you, you know, with the right partners, you could just win on product. So what you're saying is that even areas that look like they 
may not be the best opportunity, but from a business standpoint, you think there's still room there to compete based on improving on existing products? Yeah, I mean, look, best in class without singling out and knocking at you know, any, yeah. anybody's business or any, or any specific category, what percentage of the world's best-in-class manufacturing supply chains are hooked up to direct... If you just think about direct distribution through paid social as another channel, the same distribution channel, the same way as Amazon's a distribution channel and Walmart's a distribution channel and, you know, whatever, uh, malls are a distribution channel, what percentage of the world's best-in-class manufacturing supply chains are really integrated into paid social as a distribution channel in any meaningful way? And it's just hard to believe the consumer um, won't be better off as that continues to happen because I do think the paid social channel is not unique. I mean, it, well, no, it, 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 it is special because you have, I, I think a lot gets lost when you group it all together as e-commerce, which is to date pretty much everything we have in e-commerce is um, search driven. And you have brand marketing, you know, still with TV as the, biggest single source of inventory. You have brand marketing where people tell you what to like and you kind of don't get to answer back. And you have search where you're telling people what you want, but it has to be, you know, wholly generated from your brain. And this is this, you know, weird, cool hybrid where people can suggest products to you, but you can answer back. And that does feel like um, a, a useful consumer function to have in there and, you know, integrating that fully with sort of, you know, the best manufacturing supply chains does seem like a good thing for the consumer. Sure. And I guess then the question is, does the product even, is it even possible to differ a normal person to differentiate? I think it depends, it depends on the category. And I think, um, you know, again, this is, you know, res- res- you know, respect the consumer. I, I'd, I'd say my, you know, my counter there is, um, Walmart's not an undemanding customer. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of these categories, whether Walmart's the end buyer or Amazon's the end buyer and retailer, you know, th- those are very smart, sophisticated teams and teams that are highly motivated and incentivized to elbow aside branded product for private label. And, you know, by private label, private label grocery, you know, grocery slash personal care is kind of held 15 to 20% back to the 1980s. If I have, I just have trouble believing, you know, if there weren't any product differentiation there, given there certainly is price differentiation, you know, that sort of the large branded manufacturers wouldn't have been elbowed out of the value equation a while ago. I don't want to get too distracted here, but do you think that, I mean, now with Amazon owning Whole Foods, do you think that's going to change? Do you see that changing at all? If you went on LinkedIn, and they they probably haven't let these people go, but if if you went on LinkedIn, you know, a year, 18 months ago, Amazon very... um, can't remember what they were calling them, sourcing associates or something, um, very optimistically had a team of, you know, a couple hundred folks who were going to do the thing all the direct brands are doing, which is, you know, build all these relationships with the CMs. There's some there's some categories where Amazon's been very successful on private label, batteries, adapters, you know, sort of some core, you know, electronic components. But by and large, I don't think the program's been a massive success. If in anything, there's been a bit of a about face. There's been a couple pieces in the Wall Street Journal, you know, typical Amazon modesty telling the large, you know, telling the large branded manufacturers of the world that Amazon has now decided that they're willing to allow the large manufacturers to do private label supply for them. I I think they tried to go head to head with these guys and they went head to head with every advantage on the distribution side that they could have had. I mean, they just were bumping people down search rigs for a couple of years and they just couldn't gain the share. That's crazy. That's crazy. So tell me, I, I, and you can 
you don't have to give me your favorite one, but you, you said that there were a few areas that you thought were sort of ripe for, I don't know what the right word is yeah. for, to give me a couple of, uh, of uh, examples of things that you think could work. I think luggage is still very interesting. I, I think a lot within, look, I, I, I think a lot within apparel still, I think, um, I, I think it's these areas where you have, and some of them already do have upstart competitors, but you know, these areas where you have an Uber premium brand and then you have, um, you know, and, you know, and then people kind of smartly trying to do the affordable version of the premium product. And then like, it could be that the person who's going after that really does have, you know, sort of on par, on par with premium product, but it's also something I'd be curious to like kick the tires on and test the waters in, in some of these categories. I guess it's funny. Cause I guess I think about, um, well, we can talk about luggage, but I, you know, I have a, an away suitcase yeah. or I have a bunch of them and they're nice, but you're probably right that there's room for more than one. I mean, maybe there are already other competitors yeah. to those guys out there. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, and, and you take a product, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good product. You know, I, is, is it truly everything that a Victronics or, you know, or to me is in terms of, you know, robustness and, scuffing and all the rest and you say okay at the price point it works but if somebody could just come in with something it's really comparable yeah i don't think i mean i think i've heard a couple of interviews with jen and it sounds like she sees herself as a as a marketer yeah. you know first and foremost yeah. and i'm sure they're proud of their product i think that it's a good product yeah exactly yeah. i mean it, it, and i think this is one of the things that's interesting about uh you know direct to consumer sort of maturing as a hopefully hopefully continuing to mature as a category is the really good price for you know for good enough product is what creates the competitive threats what convinces people that the space is real such that it is worth taking the leap and doing the really good price on the best in class product and you know you know the biggest story here this year and you know probably the last few years was uh disney you know you know i mean that that's exactly what that was right is netflix has run a multi-billion dollar uh, sales campaign to convince Disney that this is a real space and, you know, and, and that it's worth Disney attacking aggressively. And I think it'll be very interesting how it plays out from here. Cause you know, six ninety nine per month for uh, Marvel and Pixar and the princesses and star Wars and the Simpsons and Titanic and Avatar and all the rest sounds like a pretty good deal. And it's, I thought, I thought Iger's announcement was really impressive. I thought, you know, sort of what sounds like real commitment and seriousness here saying this thing isn't going to necessarily be profitable until 2024 and that this is a channel they want to own and that they're willing to burn money in the meanwhile to, you know, to grab the land and that they're willing to throw sort of their whole content library against it. That's fascinating. I hadn't even thought about it that way. Okay, let's let's play a game. So let, pretend you're a young entrepreneur and you're going to start a business out of business school or wherever it is, whatever you do. And you have two choices. One is to iterate. Say, my favorite example is actually there was a company, I can't remember what they were called, but they existed back around like 2009, 2010 in San Francisco. And they would come, you would basically use your phone to summon them. And some guy or woman would ride up on a foldable bike, come meet you wherever you were at a restaurant, fold up the bike, put it in the back of your trunk and drive you home. So it was sort of a pre-Uber yep. way of not drinking and driving. And when they arrived, everyone went nuts. We were all super happy because <laughs> it meant you didn't have to worry about parking. You, you know, there was just, you know, taxis were terrible. There was just nobody to get around. So, and that lasted like six months because Uber showed or yeah. Lyft, whatever it was, they, sh I can't remember which was first, but the, they sh yeah. showed up and that was the end of it. I mean, that was, so they were that close. And I don't know if like Uber and Lyft were iterating on that business or if they were in parallel, just working in their own world. But so that's option A is go, 
take something where you can improve the product, I guess, is or, or, or uh, option B is to take a second, what we were just talking about to take a, take an existing product that that's good, but just Im- improve on distribution, I guess, is sort of the other. What's the, if you're a, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I mean, I'm spending way too much time at this point, you know, thinking about direct distribution um, through digital marketing to answer anything other than it's, you know, that's the problem everyone should be working on. Um, you know, and if anything like, which is a completely insane answer, but it's, it's a weird place to be at this point. And it's funny having, you know, been on the investment side before this, having done, you know, bounced around a bunch before this, um, you know, you definitely get the tunnel vision. And if anything, it's, you know, it, you start, yeah, I start thinking, how can you reformulate other problems to fit into the frame, you know, into the framework that I'm playing with all day, you know, so it's okay. How do you make policy making in government a you know a direct marketing problem how do you make uh how, you know how do you make um you know healthcare direct marketing problem selfishly it's a pretty strong anchor and a pretty strong bias at this point because i think a lot about direct marketing and i don't think that much about other things so um anything i can kind of reframe in that playground i have something to say about it all right well then i want to ask you two follow-up questions so one is you're i'm gonna i'm not i can't let you get away with explaining to me how you're going to use how you're going to innovate in the healthcare space with using direct marketing i gotta hear some you you must have some idea what you can do there well i mean i think it's very and there's been some negative reporting on this front too you know that i don't know if you read the times piece you know the the times coverage late but uh, on telemedicine but generally i think the telemedicine space which is you know not really a focus of our business even even if we're a you know healthcare product I think it's just really interesting because it, because it's exactly the same. If you have one funnel, which is, you know, whatever, PNG, Nestle, uh, Nike, Colgate factory, TV brand marketing, Walmart, Kroger's, CVS, you know, and that's sort of the thing that all these direct brands are going after. It, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You have, in, you know, the insurance, hospital, doctor, supply chain with even less room for the consumer to have a voice in that. You don't even call them a consumer. Then you call them a patient. She wants to be called a patient. It might be that Walmart, Walmart doesn't have infinite shelf space, although Amazon now does. So you're limited in your selection choice, but at least you get to pick. And in the medical setting, you're working off of somebody else's uh, price table with all sorts of weird logic running into it. And I think just the same way that, you know, whatever e-commerce is 9% of uh, retail. It's not that I I think hospitals are, you know, or, tra- or traditional medicine, or, you know, traditional sort of physical uh, medical deliveries going anywhere for the vast majority of medical consumption and even more so. But I do think it's very interesting. It gives you a really interesting test ground, particularly for out-of-pocket categories to learn more faster than ever before about what the con- what the patient consumer values and where they're willing to put a premium and like what categories will they actually open their own wallet for. And that's like directly interesting for any business that's selling these products direct to consumer. But I think even more interesting, um, sure, it's interesting for the pharmas and the, you know, and the, and, and the healthcare systems. But I think for policymakers, it's very interesting. And for researchers, it's very interesting in terms of its direct, it's very direct feedback that been hard to get before in terms of what consumer patients value and what they actually care about and where they like everything from medical training resources to grant resource, you know, to grant funds to everything to be going. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt you can spend even a few minutes as a patient and understand where there are areas that are ripe for 
disruption or innovation, whatever, whatever buzzword you like. The problem that I, that I've seen in the thinking about this, and I've thought about it a lot is there are certain areas in healthcare that are super ripe. You know, so dermatology is an example. I think diabetes management and Verta Health in San Francisco has done a great job of basically making virtual diabetes management a reality. But there are some areas like my own area, cardiology, where it's going to be, technology is going to eventually get there. But as of today, there's no mechanism for me to examine you through a smartphone or virtually, right? There's no way to put a stethoscope on your chest. There will be, I think, but for right now, that remains a barrier. So then you ask yourself, well, maybe you take a hybrid approach. Maybe you put doctors in vans. Right. I mean, they're, uh, yeah. You know. But even, even something, even something like, uh, Ancestry or 23andMe, just learning, like learning to me, that's a big lesson that there was a, there was much greater demand for that kind of information and data from consumers than would have been obvious at all before. Cause you go back, you go back, you know, 10 or 15 years. And the only way that consumers are accessing any genetic data. Um, you know, was through the very expensive sort of disease by disease panel test. Not, not that there's anything wrong or untoward about that. What, however relevant or not those businesses end up being, it's, it's, it's a big lesson for the healthcare system broadly that like, to the extent that the healthcare system views its job at all as actually satisfying patients, this is an area of enormous curiosity for patients. And even if the delivery mechanism is going to be through the office with the, with the MD, that like we should be training MDs to um, to speak fluently in these areas with their patients because this is something that patients are incredibly curious about where they want more you know where they want information and they you know and they want those questions answered. Yeah, I think the problem there, of course, is that the incentive structure is completely yeah. ups, up, upset and backwards, and so maybe that is the area where you can think really you can poke at it. So my second follow up question was more uh, esoteric, and it's more mm-hmm. uh, outside of my direct area, but. It, so, you know, there's this whole concept direct to consumer ads and, you know, through social media and stuff like that. Seems like it's hit an at least from an outside perspective, it seems like it's hit an area of maturity and commodification to some degree. Is there do you see it still being an area that you can innovate in and, and that there are places where you can keep doing better and better? Yeah, I, I think it's just moved outside the platform for themselves, which is the traffic you get, look, the, the traffic through paid social is the lifeblood of all of this. But just the same way that, uh, you know, that your, you know, 15 or 30 second spot on TV isn't your only touch point with, with the business. I, I think the space is kind of maturing beyond the confines of the Facebook, Instagram, you know, Pinterest, whatever apps themselves. And a lot of the interesting work now is happening on the landing pages. A lot of interesting work is happening in terms of how different brands um, are collaborating with each other to create sort of more aggregated, uh, consolidated experiences, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's kind of where the work is still to be done, which is, okay, this has been proven out as a distribution channel, you know, as a marketing slash distribution channel, but it's an incredibly chaotic, disorganized, um, poorly managed space and aggregate. I mean, you think about, take something like um, if you were to map, the supply chains for all the, you know, the $15 billion of direct-to-consumer revenue versus $15 billion of revenue from Amazon. One is a highly rationalized, efficient system. The other one has n- no particular rhyme or reason to it at all, other than like um, what 3PL's individual founders just sort of randomly found on the internet. It, you know, and, and I think, you, you know, you can look at that in customer service. You can look at that in financing, where I think, you know, you're starting to see a lot of interesting things from groups like uh, ClearBank and Phoenix who are, you know, who are starting to say, 
okay, um, these are kind of the SMBs of the future. Um, Wait, so what's SMB? Small, uh, small, medium business, ah. you know, that, 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 you know, this is, um, there was one wave of these are all going to be venture financed and, you know, venture financing is, you know, I, I think still appropriate for, for some of these businesses, but there's also just an opportunity to build a lot of, you know, healthy businesses here. And that doesn't necessarily line up with the traditional venture structure because that's not necessarily the kinds of outcomes and exits that founders of these businesses are looking for that are, you know, feasible for them. But it also doesn't sort of line up with going down to your local bank for a loan either. Um, and so you're, you know, you're starting to see specialty, you know, specialty finance in the space um, sort of better directed at understanding the needs of the space, understand and really understanding um you know, uh, the, the, the CPA LTV models that drive direct to consumer. Um, so, you know, so that you have experts who, experts who can finance without saying that we're lending against the real estate of the pizza shop or that this needs to be, um, you know, a $5 billion exit. That's interesting. I, I, I think I saw a tweet the other day from David Sachs who led our seed round and he said something about how he thought like one of the areas that was most ripe for, innovation now was in businesses that were supporting young businesses, basically. That, right. It's because it is, it is a community of businesses. And I mean, you know, uh, Ben Thompson's had, you know, plenty on this in terms of the Amazon ecosystem and Amazon as a series of businesses that really exist to support Amazon merchants. Um, and there's kind of, there's infrastructure in place in that you have AWS, you have Stripe, you have Shopify, but the, there's very, actually very little that thinks of these as businesses that have a different cash flow cycle than traditional retailers and businesses that are in the business of merchandising um, and need a bunch of support services around their merchandising activities. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. All right. A couple of last quick questions, because I want to be respectful of your, of your time. I, I couldn't help but notice when I walked in your apartment that you had these posters. And of, and I, of course, I'll describe it for everyone because they can't see it, but there were a bunch of political posters. They all looked like presidential tickets on the wall walking into Jesse's apartment. And my, I was initially drawn to one that said Gore and then up to one that said Dukakis and Benston. And then directly above that was McCain and Palin. And I said, wait, something's wrong. And so I said, what, what's the deal? What the hell's going on here, Jesse? So uh, you just said one word, which was, I think it was either failure or the losers. losers. It's the wall of losers. losers. And, and I wrote down here, I'll prove it to you, um, in my notes here, one word, um, or a question for you, which is failure, good or bad. And so I think it ties in really nicely. Tell me the story of how that wall sure. exists and then tell me what you think about failure. Uh, failure motivating. Oh, I, I'm a political junkie or, you know, they are political posters, but like uh, the thing to me that's interesting is like, if you were to go Six months before election day, for any of those folks, they were probably, you know, more or less the most successful people they had ever met. And like, they are all remembered as failures, basically. That's, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind for every single one of them, not in an antagonistic way necessarily, but you, <laughs> you got to go out there scrapping every day. Um, not even to avoid that, those folks all obviously, uh, you know, scrap very hard. You, you know, you, you got to leave it all out there because, um, because no matter how good it looks right now, tomorrow's not guaranteed. But I guess, let me ask it a different way. Cause maybe it's a leading question. Maybe I want to hear the answer. I'll expect I want, which, which is what do you see as the value of failure? I mean, obviously death is, you can't recover from, yeah. but, but short of, you know, death or sort of catastrophe? Are there opportunities that you feel like are great learning experiences for you or for your company that, 
involve some degree of failure. God, you're talking to an ex-Bridgewater person here. I'm going to give a super Bridgewater response. I mean, like, death, whether literal death or not, you know, is really kind of the only true point of failure. It, you know, it's hard if you're if you're willing to pick yourself back up off the floor um, and try to keep iterating on whatever it is that just happened, it's hard to call anything um, really a failure. It's just an outcome of an experiment, and you kind of keep rolling with it from there. So you embrace it. Yeah, you try to. It feels crappy, though. Um, so, like, not that much. But in theory, sure. My favorite analogy, I, I always tell people the world of academic science is one where, you know, it's kind of like baseball, where if you're batting 300, you're in the Hall of Fame. Like yeah. it's, um, And so you learn how to fail. And maybe we accept, maybe I accept it too much. In fact, I think some of some of the time I've, I won't worry that I've been conditioned to, to like it too much. But But you have to. Right. And you want, and if anything, like a lot of where we spend time and partly just because this is what the, you know, d- direct response world is well geared for and well designed for is failing as fast and as cheaply as possible. And that the ones that you should feel relatively worse about are the ones where you could have learned, you were stubborn and you could have learned faster or cheaper that something wasn't working and you just dug in your heels. Okay. A couple more quick ones. So l- leadership born or bred fake i don't think it exists doesn't exist yeah do you feel like you uh you feel good about yourself as a leader or do you think you just i mean do you think i guess if you had to like hand over the keys to the car tomorrow you you think you'd feel good about that or would you work work to find somebody i think everybody just has things they things they care about and generally if you're the person who cares the most about something um you tend to drive the ball forward the most there. Um, and if you're the person and, you know, and then you run like whenever I'm grouchy is you feel like you care more about something than other people. And you're not the one who gets to drive the ball forward. But, um, you know, but I don't think there's it like a, most people care pretty deeply about something. And so it's just, you know, what the setting is. Sure. Okay. This is related, but talent. So when you're looking at talent, sort of what, what are the things you look for? I hate sort of interview driven hiring, like generally the right way to do something, I think, is you just start working with the person um, and you figure out how can I start working with this person? I should just work with as many people as I possibly can. How do I make my bandwidth as wide, as great as possible so I can work with as many people as possible in the lowest risk way possible on both sides so that rather th- rather than having to have some sort of you know artificial interview process, uh, I can kind of just set my default to working with everybody who wants to work with me. And the ones that sort of gather momentum and gather steam, you know, everybody's going to want to put more time into. And the ones that don't, nobody's going to want to put any en- energy into. And they just, you just kind of let them filter themselves. I love it. It's like Darwinian. Yeah. Right. right. That, that's yeah. like the, per- you, yeah. you, ha- you only have so many hours in the day, so you can't run the perfect version of it. But that like, that would, in my mind, that would be the idea. Well, it's also like, it's like direct to consumer marketing and like a, in talent and HR. Yeah. Well, cause you, cause like most people, and I, again, I think it's a setting thing. Like I think most, most people will work very hard in some setting, but most people won't work very hard in the thing that you need them to work hard on. And so the easiest thing to do is just to ask them to do a little bit of work on the thing you need that you want to work with them on. And usually they'll just self-select out by not doing anything and then you're done and you don't have to make a decision. That's great. Okay. Last one. So this one, you're still close enough to college that it's kind of too easy, but I get asked the question all the time from young people about sort of what are the kinds of things that you think I should be 
Like what courses should I be taking? What skills should I learn to acquire? What are the things that I'm going to need in my life? And obviously it depends a lot on what they want to do, but generically, is there anything that you kind of look back on and think, I, I really wish I had taken an art history class or a philosophy class or a coding class or something uh, that you think could be super useful in a generic sense to a young person? I don't think I got that much out of my college courses, I, but I do think, um, I think college is like, you, you'll never have as much time with as little responsibility as college and you should be like, you don't, don't, you know, you, you, the grades matter and you, you know, and you, and you can, you can't bag your courses, but, um, but you should, you know, every semester at Columbia, I, I, I kind of shoved all my courses into two days a week. So I always had an internship or I was trying to start different projects or this or that. And like, there's just, you're surrounded by, you're in a, you're in an interesting community with lots of, you know, smart, curious people and you're responsible for almost nothing. And there's just like not another period like that. And so you should be like tinkering as much as possible um, and trying to learn as much about yourself as possible and what you're really bad at, especially because, you know, I don't think generally you get much better at the things you're bad at, or at least I don't think I do, but at least you can start figuring out what kinds of people you should be working with based on what you're bad at. And it's a good time to start putting that all together. Okay. So I promised that was the last one, but this is really the last one. So is there anything that you're bad at that you would like, like to be good at? I have like such, (laughs) I have such a fatal, I I don't know if it's just a cop out. I have a really sort of fatalist view of, at least by personality, but I think personalities in general. And it, and I've, I've like gone more and more, not, not that outcomes are preordained, but like how you're going to respond to the outcomes, you know, fairly written. So basically, if you suck, you suck, and there's nothing you're going to do about it? Not even, like you try as hard as you can, but you shouldn't. Like, I, I, I think in general, there's not that much upside to like raking yourself over the coals for for your mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's easier if you take a step back and like think of yourself as a little automaton that's going to play out the steps that like you're wired to play out. Um, you're an old soul. Um, all right, listen, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I love talking to Jesse. For one, He was far and away the youngest person I've had on Best Known Method, and he may well also be one of the smartest. As I mentioned earlier, he was a math and film major, and then he went to Harvard Law School, but he dropped out after his first year to go work at the world's biggest hedge fund. He then went to work for the endowment of Columbia University, and then he made the move to start his own thing. It's clear that for Jesse, the mission was secondary, or rather, his mission was to find the best opportunity and to exploit it. I love how he combines his talent for storytelling and narrative with intense analytic skills. And together, these have led him to think about how to best deliver products to consumers in new ways, in cheaper ways, in less complicated ways. And while he believes product is important, he clearly thinks that customer experiences as are more important. These principles, and especially the principle of focusing on talking to and listening to customers, are critical and defining. Lastly, I want to return to the posters of losing presidential candidates in Jesse's apartment. He is fascinated with losers. Why? Because there's so much to learn from failure. For one, Jesse says, quote, It's hard to call anything really a failure. It's just, you know, an outcome of an experiment. And you keep rolling with it from there. So you embrace it. The ones that you should feel relatively worse about are the ones where you could have learned you were stubborn. 
and you could have learned faster and cheaper that something wasn't working, that is best known method. <laughs> 